We're back, and rugby might be back. Welcome, Jimbo. Welcome back to the studio. How you doing, sir? Good. I'm good. Uh, first up, as usual, thank you to the cover. They give us uh, plenty of uh, rest between reps yeah. at the moment, mainly because there's not much to talk about. My kind of coach. <laughs> Let me rest between <laughs> efforts. Uh Check out thecover.com.au. There's some good stuff happening. Michael Motta's still killing it with his lists. He is going to start uh, doing more stories about the AFL now that they're on the comeback trail. There's also a couple of new podcasts starting, one with Eddie Senatori. Uh, we don't have a name for it yet, but he is going to be interviewing some coaches and sports administrators about where business and sport intersect and how that looks and, and some of the competing priorities. We've also got another podcast starting. Again, we don't have a name for it. But it will be showcasing uh, young upcoming MCs. So they come into the studio, they spit 64 bars, and then they talk about it. So that's going to be pretty cool as well. But we're here to talk about sevens. And rugby generally has now a framework to return. So it looks like community footy is coming back. Uh, June 1st, to some semblance of training. How's that make you feel? Nervous. <laughs> Nervous. I haven't run in a long time. I'm retired, so I don't really care. I get to, I get to do the yelling, not be yelled at now. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, I guess, you know, that, that means, you know, we're going to get some semblance of normal, normal behavior soon. Um, you know, we can get back into our routine and, and all of that sort of stuff. So I guess from in that regard, it's good. We still don't have a clear outline of what Super Rugby in Australia is going to look like. Um, it's been a while that I guess there's a lot of moving parts. There was talk of the Sunwolves coming back in. That doesn't look like it's going to happen. Western Force, it appears, haven't been formally invited. Yeah. <laughs> Been instructed to come and play, but not asked. Um, so you know, I don't know. It, you know, it may end up being that it's just the four teams. You know, eight, eight rounds, maybe what, whatever. I don't know. Um, but the teams are back training, so I guess that's a, a positive step. Maybe the teams know something that we don't in terms of when it's going to come back and, and what it's going to look like. Um, and if they did eight rounds. It sort of allowed them to start two weeks after Super Rugby Atuera, which means they could. There's potential then to have Australia New Zealand final to series. kind of to kind of link up at the yeah. back end of the year. And look, yeah, that's that's another thing that's really exciting is is Super Rugby Atuera kicks off June 13th. So they're they're playing. Uh, they do two games every week. One's on a Saturday and one's on a Sunday. Uh, with one team having a bye each week. Ten rounds, no final series for now. Maybe that's you know where the crossover is. The uh, doors open. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then in some, I guess it's bittersweet news. The Aon series has been 
I, you know, f- for want of a better term, it's been cancelled for this year. But it looks like it's going to be moved into the front end of 2021. So in that sort of February, March, April window, May even, depending on the calendar. Um, I personally think it's a good thing. Mm. I know some people online were pretty hot about it. But if you think if you think about it from the athlete's perspective, particularly particularly the junior athletes, so you're seeing more and more of, of sort of year 11 and 12 girls uh, come in and, and compete at that Aeon series. By having it in February or March or next year, you allow them to get their sort of junior uh, state team responsibilities done. So they get that, you know, it's a shorter, shorter high performance program. Go in, do your state national, state junior state team. You know, then if you, you do well there, get picked for the uh, junior national team, play in the world school sevens, and then you graduate into the Aeon series with one of the, with one of the 10 unis. So, you know, from that, from that perspective, it makes a lot of sense. The other reason it makes a lot of sense is, especially uh, in the in the preseason, you're seeing a lot of girls where the calendar currently sits. They're playing 15 aside footy, straight into seven, straight into seven aside footy. It doesn't really allow much time to adjust. And I know that a lot of athletes were finding, and it's true all. A lot of the stuff you you teach them to do in sevens is not necessarily what you want them to be doing as a fifteen aside head coach. So it's yeah, it's a little bit hard. Yeah, the the basic fundamentals are the same, but the execution is is very different. Yeah, especially with things like depth. Yeah, um, you know we want them to play super deep, give themselves plenty of time. Whereas in fifteen aside footy, they want to play more flat at the line, so it's faster. So we find a lot of the girls get stuck in between. So they're too too flat for sevens, but too deep for fifteens. Yeah. Um, so from that perspective, it'll be really good because it means you know that they'll finish their club footy stuff in sort of August September, and then you know a bit of time off at the back end of the year. You know yeah. September September October off, and they come in November December to start preseason. And you look at it from an education perspective. So they finish fifteens, you know that August, September mark, then they can focus in their footy downtime, focus on finishing school. Yeah. And then looking at next, you know, you've got girls who then have an abundance of universities they can go to to play. So, you know, they can start semester one and then, then be playing Aon, not not playing Aon while they're trying to finish off the year 12 and then make a decision about yeah, and it, university. And from that perspective too, it's, it's perfect because they're in their, you know, they're in their summer holiday um, yeah. during the preseason. So they really can rip in and have a crack. Um, the, the pathway's a lot clearer. And I think universities will like that a lot more than, ha- you know, having schoolgirls playing. They'll be having first-year university students playing. Yeah, and I, I like the idea of, you know, having having a sevens tournament during O-Week, for example. Yeah. You know, so back end of O-Week. Um, yeah, it means some of the athletes will have to tone down their <laughs> O-Week festivities. Um, but... It, you know, it, 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 it will provide a platform to involve students from the university as, as spectators, as fans, as, as um, volunteers, whatever. You know, at the moment where the tournament sits, it tends to, the last couple of tournaments tend to be around exam time, yeah. um, which is challenging. Yeah, for, for the players and for the universities, yeah. definitely. 
Yeah, and for their elite athlete coordinator. Oh, yeah. Oh dear, and then I guess the other, the other, the other big, big thing is that it it will allow for the the rugby calendar to align a little bit better. Um, you know where Super W sits at the moment is not ideal because you know they they get that sort of six week block where they're playing high level footy. You know they get put into their ponies groups and whatever, but then they go away for three or four months before they come back together again uh, to play those tests. Yeah. So, you know, if you move, if you, in a perfect world, you know, we'd, I guess we'd just model it, um, you know, of, of, of what men's rugby looked like sort of in the early nineties um, with super 10, where you sort of, you have that competition held in, you know, June, July, somewhere in that window. And then you're playing tests um, July, August, September, somewhere in that, in that, um, in that window. And look, it, it, it's not ideal for club rugby because it means a lot of those girls will be pulled out of club footy for for patches. But the the, the reality is, you know, if if we want to provide high high performance programs and 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 all of that, there just has to be a bit of a trade off there. But can that work similar to the men's game? Girls coming back, you know, yeah, week in, yeah. week out. So. Yeah, it's not. You know, we're not. It's not that you're pulling them out completely. It's just you know they're 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 in and out week to week depending on who's in the test squad and where it is and 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 all that sort of thing. So it you know if you look at men's rugby before uh, before '96 before it was professional, you you really didn't have you know David Campisi played like two games for Ramwick um, and none for Queanbeyan. <laughs> um, and it was just because you know you had a really intensive sort of super super ten season, and then a really intensive um, test, window. Te- test window, smaller window. So you know the opportunity to play club rugby was really at the start of the year, sort of in the first in the first few rounds. It, it, it's not the perfect solution, but in terms of aligning the high performance programs, that is, it, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and and obviously with Tokyo pushed back to twenty one. The having A on at the start of the year is, is a really good opportunity for those top level girls to really, you know, put their foot in the door for, for Tokyo. And and for from the Sevens calendar it may it makes a lot of sense too because you have the Sydney Sevens at in February. It's usually first first, first weekend. First yeah. weekend in February or last week in January. And then you have about a ten or twelve week break between that and the Hong Kong Sevens. Yeah. Um which uh, which in that period it currently they're not getting any footy it's all it's all training um and and i guess the other thing too is you know when when the world series finishes it usually finishes in june or july sometimes as late as august if 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 it's a world cup year or whatever then all the players have to take their leave so they get a they get two weeks to a month of leave so they all have to take their leave then they come straight back into training with like two weeks to prepare for Aon. Mm. And so it's not from a, from a programming perspective, you know, load management, injury prevention, all that. It's not ideal because you're rushing them back into a, into a, a high performance competition. Yeah. And, and, you know, maybe that's why we have seen injuries um, to, to, especially to those sort of development level players because they're not getting a lot of footy across the year. A lot of soft tissue, knee, ankle injuries, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so, you know, maybe... So that I think that 
has weighed heavily in terms of the thinking around where it sits as well. And if you think about it from a marketing perspective too, you've got a perfect platform in the Sydney Sevens to launch the competition. Yeah. You've got all these friendlies, you know, hopefully Australia wins in both the men's and the women's. So everyone's on this high. Everyone's like, yeah, we love Sevens. Where can we get more of it? And it's yeah. like, bang, two weeks later, all the, all the girls that you just saw are going to be, yeah, in different colours, but they're going to be playing against each other in another another competition. Yeah, and then that, I guess from a marketing perspective too, rolls that sevens hype all the way through to, towards Tokyo. Yeah, so we don't have this 10 to 12 week lull anymore. You have a, you know, a four or five round Aeon series in that, in that block, straight back into Hong Kong and then back into the end of the year and, and, straight into the Olympics and then straight into the Women's World Cup yeah. a couple of weeks after that. Um, so, you know, that, that that's going to be the other consideration too is that... Sponsors dream. <laughs> well, Aon, Aon's got the insurance now. Yeah. So, you know, hopefully they continue to, to support the game. But now that they've got rugby's insurance um, as part of their business, we've seen over the years, you know, businesses are prepared to buy... The work, and then once they get it, you know what's the incentive to keep trying to buy the work? But Aon have been a great supporter of of women's rugby, and I think they'll continue to be having spent a bit of time with them. So yeah, I think it's I think it's a good thing. The other thing we need to talk about is the axes. The axe has been swung well mm. and well and truly. I think we you know we kind of expected this uh, given given the, the current climate. Um, but, you know, from the women's program, Lauren Brown, Yasmin Meeks and Emma Sykes have all been released. Uh, they're going to honour their contract. Until August 31. Which I assume is at a 60% reduction. Not sure. Um, so, you know, I guess for for Lauren, for, for the three of them, you know, it... it, it probably a hard pill to swallow given you know they weren't really given that that many opportunities and and particularly for Sykes um injuries really yeah yeah, hampered her development for a good year and a half sort of on and off injured yeah and it uh, you know if you watched her particularly in attack in the first year of the Aeon series she was one of the best yeah yes so so we were lucky enough to have her Utah's in year two Mm. just the way she spoke about the game and attack and the way she sees things like she's an unreal footballer. Mm. Mm. Um but yeah, you know, I guess couple couple of the injuries she's probably allowed a couple of younger athletes to to jump her in the pecking order. Um you know, yeah, your, your Maddie Ashby's and 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 Georgia Hannaway's that that we've seen have some success on the series this year and you know, look, I, I yeah, it, it it's probably one of the harder conversations you have to have with a player as a coach where you you sit with one and, and you say, look, this decision really isn't necessarily because you're a bad footballer or you're a, you're not a good athlete or you're not, you know, you're not a good person. We, we just, we don't have a need for your skill set anymore. Yeah. It's like being made redundant. Yeah. And, and I guess that that's, you know, depending on how you look at it, the, the way the Aussie sevens, um, Staff manager in saying, well, you know, we, we weren't going to renew your contract after August 31st. So given we don't know when we're returning, we may as well tell you that now so you can move on 
and you know get ahead of things. So you got to sort of respect it that way. They didn't just hide behind the contract and then not renew it when it ran out. Yeah, and and I think, yeah, you know, I think that that shows a lot of character from the front office to say, look, we don't think you're in in the picture for the Olympics. Um, so you know, mm. move on, get and, on with your life. And I guess that those contracts for for those girls, they would have been waiting to see what happened post Tokyo with the seven or eight big dogs that we were thinking would retire, then all yep. of a sudden those contracts probably get renewed. Yep. But because all of a sudden there's 12 months of extra funding and, and you know, they it, it, they said these contracts weren't axed for financial reasons, but yeah. they weren't reinstated probably because they had to continue 12 well, months of big contracts. Well, and, you know, the other, the other thing to consider is that, you know, it opens up an additional three slots – um, for post Tokyo, so you, you know you might, you know you might you might see them hang on to those and and pick up a couple of girls out of the Aon series in the front end of the year or or yeah or or whatever. And you imagine picking up a young, a young up and coming superstar in the back end of Aon will be year four, and then they get to be a, a development squad member for that whole Tokyo journey. And then all of a sudden go, you know, get their opportunity post Tokyo. They're going to be flying. Yeah. So, you know, I think there's a, yeah, it's just, it, it's got to be a fairly tough pill to swallow, you know, particularly for, for Brown and Meeks too. I think you definitely couldn't fault their effort no. or their ability, but the, the way the game is going now in terms of the, the, the skill sets and, and, and the athleticism and, and that sort of thing, you know, Brown and Meeks are, probably in a position where they don't necessarily fit the, the mold of a forward mm. in terms of being, you know, big and physical and, and, and love to ball carry probably not, probably not fast enough to be a fast forward. And then, you know, potentially not um, skilled enough at that level to, to be a half or, yeah. or a center. Yeah. So, yeah. And then I guess the, the other bit of pill to swallow is, you know, bar probably Australia and New Zealand that, they're in the starting seven of any other international team. Yeah, you know, it's just that we we are we have that luxury of so much depth at the moment. Yeah, and look, you know, as I say, it's it's got to be a tough pill to swallow because I don't think that it has anything to do with their you know their effort or anything like that, attitude, all of that. I think it's it's purely you know you know in twenty seventeen you fit what we were trying to do in now in twenty twenty. With a, with another year to prepare for the Olympics, we've realised that our, we want to shape our squad in a different different way. And and as any NBA player will tell you, it's a business. Yeah. So if we look at the men, the the axe has the axe has really been swung here. So um, Parahi, Skelton, Tom Connor, Matt Hood, and uh, Quinn have all been cut. And if you you know if you look at this. Particularly Parahi, like you're losing forty tournament appearances there. Yeah. What was he the fifth most capped Aussie seventh player of all time? Yeah. So, you know, forty tournament appearances, you know, a handful of gold medal matches, um, you know, plenty of plenty of uh top four finishes. So it's a you know, it's a significant amount of of experience that you're losing there. The, with the uh, you know, yeah. With the others, Skelton is a you know I, we kind of knew he was going to do the super ugly thing anyway. Post Tokyo, yeah. So I guess it makes sense that they've released him, given we know there's going to be 
some form of Super Rugby coming. Yeah, it just said that he he you know he's one of our most dynamic forwards in, in that space, and a lot of those games where we seem to struggle, he's the one that that turns the game on its head and, and opens it back up. Yeah, and it, yeah, it, as you say, it's disappointing to lose a talent like that because of that X factor that he has. Yeah, you know, a lot of the. Without being too rude, a lot of the guys in that seven setup don't have that X factor. You know, Longbottom's got it a little bit, yeah. but you know, the, the reality is you're, you're you're generally dealing with, you know, maybe the hundred and fiftieth to two hundredth best rugby athletes in Australia yeah. in the men's seven setup. Yeah. So it's always going to be a challenge. So it's always going to be hard to find those guys who have that something extra, yeah. which is you know why it is. Such a shame to lose uh, a guy like Skelton. Um, you know, Connor Hood and Quinn been really successful in the QPR yeah. seven since that kicked off. You know, we haven't seen a lot of them. So combined uh, 17 caps or 17 appearances between between those three. Yeah, and you, you look at someone like TC. He, he came in because he was so dynamic over the footy. Mm. Um, you know, when, when he was playing for New South Wales what, Nationals two years ago, he was one of the best over the ball I'd seen in, in the game. And then he sort of, he obviously hasn't been able to crack the other parts of the game. You know, he, he's not the quickest. He's not the best ball player. So they do lose a bit there. But, you know, his first his first couple of games in the World Series, I think he had four or five turnovers in a game, which is, as we know, in sevens is, is big time. But, you know, he, he also might be another one that's looking at that Super Rugby contract. Well, and, you know, that that's a good point. It's something... Probably both the men and the women that we we need to be better at if, yeah. if we want to be successful. That 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 strong strong pill for over the ball and then ability to shift it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we we look at the the NZ development space, the French development space, which we saw firsthand. Yeah, and then the US and Canadian development space is so physical. Yeah, you know, and that, like the Australian players still far better football players, far more skilled, quicker, all of that, but. The contact space and and the aggression is, is yeah, something we seem to lack. And, and you know, you mentioned the French, which we saw firsthand. If they ever get their skills up to scratch, we're in trouble. Yeah. Everyone, yeah, everyone's in trouble. And the the Japanese aren't far behind. Yeah, you know, yeah. they're nowhere near as big, but probably four times more aggressive and, and physical than anybody else. Yeah, I mean, I know I've spoken to you about this off air, but I actually think Michael Hooper is probably the perfect sevens athlete. Yeah, in terms of so you know he's. He's effective in Super Rugby and in Test matches over the ball, but think about how effective he'd be coming across to a sevens game, yeah. and then with his, you know, his ability to carry and and you know ball play a little bit, yeah. Maybe that six million dollars could be spent better. Yeah, you sort of sort of look at him in, in that hooker role where he could potentially lock down the middle of the field and be that that you know ball player through the middle, and he's dynamic and quick enough to to be a threat as well. Yeah, and and you know, I guess. I guess that's why they brought McMahon back too. Yeah, you know he offers a lot of a lot of those things in a in a bigger frame. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it, you know, and, and interestingly, now you look at the men. I guess they're they're cutting the middle tier, but all of these guys up until this point had been specialists. Now most of the squad are doing both. Yeah, yeah. Um, which presents some challenges. Uh, you know, moving forward. Um, which probably brings us to our next point. You know, there's there's been a little bit of of a discussion about decentralising the sevens programs generally. Yeah. So we agree too often. So what I'm what what we're, what we're going to do here, I think, is one of us is going to make 
a case for decentralization and one of us is going to make a case against it. Oh, which one do you want? <laughs> no, which one do you want? I'll go against decentralization. Okay. Staying centralized, just so I don't get confused. <laughs> so you're, <laughs> so you, okay, you're, okay, make the case for remaining centralized. Performance. Yep. T- team performance is the first thing that comes to mind. Um, obviously, the, the financial aspect of decentralization I get in terms of them all being in Sydney and, and expensive, but, you know, send them down to sunny Canberra. <laughs> a third of the price, and we can keep them all centralised at, at the AOS. But, yeah, I, I think, especially leading into Tokyo, you know, um, the team environment, the culture, everything off the field is going to be really, really important if we are to be successful in Tokyo, both in the, in the men's and women's space. Probably probably more so in the men's space, in terms, you know, given that they've got a whole lot of new guys and there's a lot of moving parts in that squad. But, you know, when we, when we speak to everyone about those big big moments and big games, it's all about, you know, yes, you've got to have the skill, yes, you've got to have the ability, which they can do decentralised, but to be able to play together and understand each other's game and, and be in the fight in those high-pressure moments together, they really need to be, you know, constantly with each other, you know, not nine to five. Uh, yeah, so would you agree that, you know, training aside, you can do all the all the prep and all the work, rugby stuff, all of that, you know, lifting weights, all, all all the stuff that staying centralised allows you to do, supervise, same coaches, all of that. But would you agree that maybe that last 2% of performance has absolutely nothing to do with rugby at all? Yeah, but yeah, they, they talk about that, that top 2% is, is all about actually being able to perform under pressure. And, you know, we, we sort of look at the, I guess, the current day breakdown of, of a professional rugby player and, and what they need to be successful is sort of that, you know, 50 to 60% like physical makeup. Like if you don't, if you don't have the physical attributes or the skill or the physical ability to complete those skills, then then you're not going to be successful. And, you know, it's around the, the 20 to 25% tactical. So, you know, in sevens, restarts, scrums, lineouts, like all of those finer tuned aspects of the game. And, the, and then the rest of it is, is that mental skill or clutch performance stuff that we, we talk about so much, which involves everything from individual athlete mental skills to team environment to culture to, you know, the, the gelling within the team and all of those things. So if, if we're weighing up, you know, a bronze medal versus a gold medal, if if everyone on the, on the circuit is of the same skill set, which is that that is getting closer and closer, and everybody has similar tactics, which, you know, we see every game, that that top two percent where we can go from bronze to gold really falls in that in that mental skill space, which is which is team and individual. And mm. I think that that's the area of the game that we lose if we decentralize. So to me, decentralization you can create better athletes because you can be more focused on the athletes that you've got. You, you know, it's not that whole team together. You can really fine tune the athletes you've got, but that comes at the cost of the overall team success. So especially you know, in in the year year before. The Olympics, you know, 12 months out, you, you don't want to be breaking the group up to then try and have to get them all back together. If, if this was year one or two of the cycle, I definitely would understand it mm. because you have, you know, it, it takes 12 to 18 months to build that high-performance environment and culture, if not up to three years. So, yeah, I certainly think at this point in time, decentralization would only be, be harmful to, to team performance. <laughs> wow, what a case. Do I... I, I I don't even need to speak. 
but I will. Uh, <laughs> so I guess for decentralization, you mentioned you mentioned the financial aspect. That's that's obviously the biggest one, um, and that's that's not just from Rugby Australia in terms of you know, oh, worldwide. Yeah, yeah but yeah, but it's yeah. also it's all if you look at the rub of the coin from the athletes too, they've just taken a sixty percent pay cut. Yeah. So, you know, the difference between living at home with mum and dad versus, you know, in Brisbane or yeah. Gold Coast or down in Canberra, you know, Batlow, wherever, you know, wherever they're from versus coming back to Sydney, having to pay rent, having to feed themselves, all, all of that, like, you know, that... Oh, their costs are up to six times more. Totally, yeah. totally. You know, commuting back and forth to training, all, all that stuff, it all, it all adds up and and... As we know, Sydney is one of the most expensive places in Australia to live. It's probably Sydney and Melbourne, and and, and especially the region of Sydney that they're in. You know, yeah, East, yeah, East more park, suburbs, more park. Yeah, you know? just get a cheap house. Nice, over rich, a nice ritzy, yeah. nice ritzy area. <laughs> yeah. So look, that that's a big one. The you know the the other benefit to to decentralisation is that with with the high level facilities that we have, you have got QAS, you've obviously got Enswiss, Actas, AIS. Um, you know, every state has a, a really a really good setup, a, a setup that's designed to assist Olympic level athletes. But the other thing it allows you to do is bring more athletes into the fold in those in those state setups. So all of a sudden, you know, you so you might have your twenty marquee players, your twenty contracted players, who are all earning a, a, a significant salary. But then you might be able to bring in you know fifteen to twenty more on no money or minimal money and have them train in their pocket. So, you know, you could have a group here in Canberra, a group at N-Swiss, a group up at the QAS, you know, a smaller group down in Melbourne, you know, one in South Australia, one in Western Australia and one down in Tasmania. So you might... Yeah, Tassie. <laughs> so from from that aspect, you might be able to um, bring more girls into the fold. Um, but... You know, even as I'm talking, it's really hard for me to think that 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 is that is going to be conducive to performance. Like I know I'm supposed to be for decentralization here, but you know, yeah. It, but 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 I think that's that's a great long term discussion to have. And absolutely, I, I, I yeah. know that you know the Aussie development space is is something they're really looking at to develop, and and you know they're doing some really great stuff in in that space. And maybe that's that's the way we do it. Is we have. You know, fifteen to twenty girls who are who are with QAS. You know, fifteen, twenty in Swiss. You know, ten, ten at Actas, and then we sort of grow up from there. And that allows that long term development without having to, you know, bring girls into Sydney for to train once or twice a week with the team in that yeah. space. And and look, decentralisation has and does work. When I was living in New Zealand, the 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 men's sevens program was decentralized so we you know we had guys coming in and out of club footy in and out of um you know npc sides you know um a week sorry two weeks prior to each tournament and then a week after so there was a you know there was a three week three week gap there where we didn't have them but they were always coming in and out you know it's worked for the men's gold medalists the fijians they come in two weeks before each tournament uh most of them play locally in in Fiji, some of them play uh, with European clubs, but the the vast majority of them are, are in Fiji. So there there is there is a framework for it to work. But yeah. I think, as you say, to to go and have a massive change where we've had, you know, we 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 centralised in two thousand and 
2014 or 2013, I think. 2013. Yeah. To, you know, it might have even been 2012 to get the full four-year cycle to, you know, to 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 get that result in in Rio. Brazil. Yeah. And then, you know, to then a year out, you know, a little bit over a year out to then decentralize and try and figure out, especially with limited resources. So all of a sudden, you know, you're going to have to have some some high-level coaching and S&C staff in Queensland, same in New South Wales, same in the ACT, same, you know, depending on how they're dispersed across the country. You know, you, you could even be talking about, you know, some some athletes going back out west, mm. central New South Wales. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, far north coast. Um, Rihanna Byers is from the central coast. So, you know, there's all of a sudden you, you're going to have to rely on those coaches out there. Yeah. Um, and, the, and then in saying that, as, as a coach, you're then having to prioritise certain girls. Yeah. You know, and, and if they're going to be your potential Olympic players anyway, why not keep that group centralised and really focus on them and, and allow the development space to, to be done by, by the regions? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, there, there, there are obvious benefits to, to both. There are obvious flaws to both. Yeah, yeah. But, but we, I think in this country, generally, we've had, you know, we've had success in all forms of, of rugby when we've had centralised programs. You know, I know the Wallabies aren't necessarily centralised, but they come in for long stretches of time together. You know, we, we've won two World Cups with a centralised academy system, centralised program, yeah. all, all of that. You know, in the in the women's seven space, we've, we've won a gold medal, we've won a World Series. We've had success. Yeah. Um, and I think, bar Fiji, everyone else who's been successful on the sevens World Series has a centralised program. Yeah, and, and I guess... At, you know, Fiji are a, a bit of an anomaly in many aspects of the game in terms of how they play at the athletes. They have all those sorts of things. But but I think that the biggest, and maybe risk is the wrong word, but perhaps the biggest risk for, you know, leading into Tokyo is that if we do decentralise and it doesn't work, you know, then we're, yeah. we're basically ruined, or not ruined. We've reinvented the wheel for the for, for the sake of it. Yeah. But, but also in saying that, if financially that's what needs to be done due to COVID, then... Yeah, yeah, obviously yeah. that's do completely do. understandable. Yeah, but from a from a theoretical point of view, you'd you'd have to say staying centralized is is right. The only other thing I would raise with the decentralized idea is that a a big part of that will be they'll have to play more footy in that they'll probably have to play club rugby to get those top ups yeah. and get get to game intensity. Yeah, that could be a good thing. Mm. Could. Also, be a bad thing. It, it, I guess, it depends. You know, if you, if you look at what uh, what they're doing up in Queensland in the seven space, I think that would be ultimately. I think that would be really good for them. Yeah, it, it, as long as it's high quality yeah. footy. I mean, the the worst thing is you get a player coming back into into club footy, and you know they're dominating by not really having to challenge themselves or do a Correct, whole lot. Yeah. And you know, then all of a sudden they get a target on their back, and all it takes is one player on the opposition to. Jimbo, so, yeah, a style of player like myself to put a put a dog shot on and <laughs> potentially, you know, potentially ruin that that player's Tokyo dream. Yeah, so I, yeah. I certainly think Queensland seem to, you know, and I'm not a massive fan of supporting Queensland, but Queensland seem to have <laughs> a lot of these things sort of, I guess, more finely tuned than we we well, do in the rest of the country. Sevens is has always been a big part of uh, Queensland rugby. Yeah. They've done it, you know, forever, um, and. 
you know, I guess it, I guess the nature of of it being warmer up there. Yeah, um, makes makes it easier. Yeah, and, and you know that you talk to a lot of guys who played a lot of Premier Rugby up there. Most of them will have spent some time in the preseason playing sevens for their club or sevens for Queensland or, or whatever. So there's a, you know, it's a, it's a bit more ingrained in the in the rugby culture up there that that sevens is sort of a part of the of of everything that they do. Yeah. Um. And then you know in the women's space, because the the QIU have had such a focus on sevens for a long time. They've got a coach in at the QAS. There's a you know a, a pretty large group of athletes on scholarship there, and and then you know some tiers underneath that where they're getting some coverage too. Plus, you know, the there's a lot of um, club sevens that happens for girls, and then some additional stuff that the Aon Aon teams are doing. So it's it, yeah, it, as you say, it's more fine tuned. They've had. You know, yeah, they've been playing the longer game. Yeah, with it. yeah, yeah. They've yeah. had a lot more funding and resourcing and and that sort of stuff go into it. And it, it look, you know, it's been re- it's been evident if you look back at those nationals, you know, junior nationals, senior nationals. It's always a Queensland team in the final. Yeah, they don't always win, but it's always a Queensland team. Um, and then you know, even with Aon, you know, the the championship hasn't left Queensland yet. No, so you know, the 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 proof is in the pudding there. Definitely. Um, to a degree, for sure. But having said that, it is it'd be like it'd be like a super rugby player, you know, not you know, not coming off an injury, having to just go straight into like a third grade game or something. Yeah. You know, it, it potentially could be that big a drop off. I I don't yeah, and then they'd be coming up against me. Yeah. Which, yeah, you know, yeah. Wouldn't be good. For- I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to offend anyone by that. That's not my intention. But I'm just trying to. You know, you, you're effectively going yeah, from taking them from international world yeah, series forty two. Yeah, so it's probably three tiers. You know, maybe four tiers. Yeah, below where they. You know, where you want where you want and them to be competing. I guess, especially on the, on the women's side, maybe that's where you know the scope of having these regionally based sevens comps to sit under Aon, which create another tier above. So it's sort of club footy, like. Mm. State rep footy, then Aon footy, then Oz development, then Aussie yep. sevens. That that sort of fills that little bit of a potential void. Yeah, in the pathway. And, and I think you know that's that was the intent with that ponies group that they put together. Yeah, yep. had had a couple of camps and and some more were planned, but obviously with the state of the world, didn't quite get there. Yeah, I do have some experience though with a Super Rugby player playing third grade. Just so <laughs> so uh, Jordan Jackson Hope, who he he. Was uh, one of the he was on the Sunwolves this year, Canberra lad. He was a contracted Brumby. If you if you go back and look at his Brumby's highlights, his first ever touch in Super Rugby, I think he threw a four man cutout pass for a try against the Rebels. Bloody Rebels! <laughs> uh, but so he uh, we, so he played for, plays for Tuggeranong Vikings. That's his his club, junior club. Um, Went obviously went to Sinetti's, played his schoolboy footy there, but he's a Vikings kid, and he we had a bye that week in in Premier grade, so first seconds and and Colts, which he was eligible for for all three at the time, um, and he hadn't played he hadn't played much Super footy, hadn't played much club footy because he'd been on the bench, so he'd been getting you know ten minutes here, two minutes there, five minutes there, then he, he Tim Sampson, who was the coach, got a phone call from. Uh, Steve Larkin, Brumby's head coach, and said, "Look, I know you guys have a buy this weekend, but I really need Jordan to play." <laughs> so 
<laughs> and credit to the young yabbies, you know, Sambo rang them and said this is going to happen, and you know they were all for it. Like, you know, for some, I guess for some of those guys, it was probably a highlight getting to play. Yeah, getting yeah. to play against a Super Rugby player, and you know, to 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 Rabs's credit, to Jordan's credit, he for probably for the first ten minutes played it like it was a Super Rugby game. Yeah. Then he realised, okay, like this isn't about me. Yeah, yeah. So you know he did he did the standoff thing, catch pass, feed the others, get everyone involved in the game. But he's super positive, like you know worked really hard in in defence. But yeah, you know it's just yeah, I guess funny, funny that I mentioned that did jog my memory. Anyway, mate, just before we finish up, I wanted to quickly revisit a point that you made earlier about sevens being a business. I think one thing that has definitely become clear through all of this is that player salaries at their current clip aren't sustainable. No. Like even, you know, even looking at like the NRL and AFL, who you would assume would be the most cash positive sports leagues in Australia, they battled. Yeah. Well, they have three months in them, they reckon. (laughs) (laughs) So what, you know, like what... You know what? What are, what's rugby's? You know what does rugby do? Like where the, the reality is, rugby's you know third or fourth rung in terms of the, what the broadcast deals worth and. Well, you think AFL is the biggest marketing brand in Australia? Ma- yeah, you know, me- sports media yeah. brand, sports or otherwise. Yeah, big, and, biggest media and marketing company in Australia. And they fell apart in minutes. Yeah. So it's it's pretty scary. Yeah, and then yeah, you know the the NRL. It went through a CEO and and all of that, um, but you know they, they they just aren't they're not sustainable. You know, there's a really basic business concept. So if I give you a dollar, if I market myself to you for a dollar, I expect to get two dollars in return. Mm. It's a little bit more complex than that, but that's the basic principle. Now I'm not I'm not saying that a uh, a player's contract should necessarily net you $2. But is it ridiculous to think it should net you one? It should it should wash its face? Yeah. So at the moment, you know, we're paying... We're paying Michael Hooper $6 million over three years or whatever. Is he really worth... To, to Australia, Rugby Australia's business, is he really worth that number? No. But we just wanted to stop him going overseas. <laughs> <laughs> and you know that, and I guess that's the other reality. That if you talk to anyone who plays in New Zealand, they earn far less money than Australian Super Rugby players, and and way less money than than they could earn in in France or the UK. Well, you look at the the South. I think the top four highest paid players are South African players playing in Europe. Correct. And yeah. they're all you know. They're all, and Michael Hooper's weirdly like fifth or sixth. Yeah. Just. <laughs> Among a bunch of blokes that are playing in, in yeah, there, there's not a sing, there's not a single New Zealand Super Rugby player on that. I think the highest is Bowden Barrett, yeah, and he's he's a couple of rungs below Hooper, yeah, which blows my yeah. mind. It's wild, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yeah, you know the, the you talk to anyone in New Zealand that the goal the goal to stay is is not money; it's the black jersey. Mm. It's the black jersey with the with the silver fern on it. Mm. Um, I think in Australia the the gold jersey is maybe not held in such high regard. I don't know. 
It, it certainly was for me. I would give. I would have given up a lot to wear that gold jersey. But you know, and it, it, yeah, and I, I guess that was the biggest difference I found playing and living in New Zealand is there's four million people in New Zealand that would give a limb to play for the All Blacks. Yeah. If for those of you who don't know, there's four million people that live in New Zealand. So <laughs> that's all of them. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that. It, you know, even I, I think even if you asked every guy on a Super Rugby contract, I don't know that they would hold that gold jersey in that high regard. I don't know. No, probably not. Yeah, Japanese club jersey is probably worth more to some of them. Well, I, I mean, you you look at the the Queensland three, whatever you want to call them, Rodder, Lucas, and um, who's the other guy? What's his name? Whatever. The Queensland three, you know. That that's been a that's been a story, obviously, where they they didn't uh, they didn't want to take a pay cut. They were stood down by Queensland Rugby. Now they've been released from their Rugby Australia and and, and Queensland and Queensland Rugby contracts. I don't think it's long before we hear that they've signed with a Japanese club or yeah. a French club or or whatever. Weird that they all have the same agent. Yeah, and that agent's got a number of players. In both Europe and Japan, it's, yeah, interesting. <laughs> well, I mean, it it we weren't going to go down this route, but it leads us to an interesting point about you know athletes and and and, and their agents and and some welfare stuff. I got told this story by um, I, I won't tell you. It was a rugby league guy, so he he's a general manager of a of a rugby league club, um, a professional rugby league club, and he told me that. He had a player who wanted a number. You know, the player said, "I want this much." Let's say it was half a million dollars. Um, The club was willing. The club was willing to, you know, come near it. Say four fifty. Then the agent rang and said, "Look, he'll take four hundred, but you need to pay me my ten percent up front." Player agents love them. So and look, I don't want to tar everyone in the same brush. I, I know some some player agents who are you know they really do look out for their players and and you know have worked with them for a long time. Took it you know took a gamble on them when they were kids and have guided them through the through the process. But the the reality is in in Australia, if you're if you're being put a Super Rugby contract in front of you, you don't need an agent unless you're one of the two best players in Australia, the the contracts are boilerplate. They're, they're a template. They all have the same stipulations. There's not, other than the number and maybe a couple of performance incentives, there's not much that you can negotiate. So to give someone 10%, 6%, 5%, to me seems like a waste of time. I, I know an agent. He... He's a good friend of mine, and he doesn't take a cent until they earn over a hundred thousand dollars per year. So that's not a so that's not a you know a contract worth twenty five thousand dollars a year over over four years. It's it's a hundred thousand dollars in one season, mm. um, and he takes I think he takes three percent, and then it's tiered the more money they make. But yeah, yeah, and you know we see it in the WNBL. You have these girls on. Sort of minimum contracts, which is seventeen and a half grand, and they're paying an agent ten grand, ten uh, percent. Yeah, 
And it, the same with the Aussie Sevens girls as well. It's crazy. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's it's not a lot of money, but but yeah, I you know I think it, back to our original point. It, it you know the the money and the player salaries has become seems to have become the the motivating factor, not necessarily the game itself. And maybe that's why our national team doesn't perform so good sometimes. Well, yeah. I mean, they talk about Super Rugby salaries paying for Xbox addictions, you know. Yeah, yeah. So whenever they're not not training, they're they're playing golf or Xbox or living these high lives on the money they're making from Super Rugby. And And their rugby's getting in the way of their streaming career. Yeah, or exactly. their social media career. That's it. And we we actually have seen a, an AFL player retire from his AFL career to focus on being an influencer. So uh, it's an int- it's an interesting time that we live in. All right. Well, I think we've kind of covered everything for this week. Given you know, given the circumstances, there's not there's not a whole lot happening. We don't have much information yet about a, a World Series uh, return. And we may not for a while, given given the, the state of the world. Um, I read something the other day that said travel prior to this is probably not going to be, you know, not going to resemble what it was until about 2023, yeah. uh, which is a scary thought. Yes, I reckon they will have no more than half of the international flights they had in, mm. you know, over the next 12 to 18 months. Which, yeah, so, you know, and, and given um, some of the parts of the world that these tournaments uh, are hosted, Cough Cough USA, um, you know, the, it, it might be challenging to bring to bring that many people in and out yeah. of, of a country, so... Um, yeah, so you know when we get when we get some news, we'll definitely uh, we'll definitely report back and and ho- you know look hopefully it's it's sooner rather than later. But if I was a betting man, I'd say it's probably not going to be until uh, yeah I, I would probably say Dubai, so November, November December is probably a realistic target yeah uh, for a return. And you know, I guess that begs the question: What happens to the World Series for this year? Does New Zealand just get given the the uh, the, the championship on the women's side, given they're sixteen points ahead of Australia with two rounds to go, or whatever? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I certainly wouldn't be upset with that. They they were definitely the be- the best team on on the series. Mm. All right. Well, thanks again to the cover. Thanks, mum and dad. You got anyone you want to shout out, Jimbo? Nah. I'm good. (laughs) They started the music again, O'Keefe. What's going on, man? You missed your window again. All right. Well, we'll be back in a couple of weeks' time if the cover allows us to have another long break. Um, Hopefully with a guest, but we'll let you know.